CNAS hosted a conversation with Sir Adrian Fulford, the first UK Investigatory Powers Commissioner. The following is a recording from the event hosted at the CNAS office on Friday, October 6th. As the Cambridge Don Mary Baird has so brilliantly described, the privacy and security debate that is currently preoccupying us in the post-Snowden world, wherein companies, nation-states and NGOs seek to outbid each other in the quest for the surveillance holy grail, this has ancient and deep roots. It is said that all roads lead to Rome, and they certainly tend to head in that direction in this very particular context. Back in 63 BC, when Cicero exposed the treasonous shenanigans of the bankrupt aristocrat Lucius Catiline, boasting down all the years that remained to him as to how he had uncovered Catiline's terrible plot and how he saved the state. Roman society found themselves slap bang in the middle of the critical, complex and passion inducing issues that preoccupy us well over 2,000 years later. The nation was then under threat. Catiline's makeshift army had massed just north of Rome and in the name of national security, Cicero took extreme measures after the forces loyal to the government routed the rebels. Routed the rebels. Cicero dispensed with many legal and civic niceties, resorting, for instance, to emergency powers and the summary execution of his enemies thereby provoking an earnest debate within the Eternal City on some of the central issues of today. Putting the themes in modern idiom, is it legitimate to deal with terrorism and other aspects of very serious crime outside the due process of law? And in the context of this particular gathering, how far should civil rights be sacrificed in the interests of homeland security? This was not, therefore, some dry, dusty moment in a deservedly long-forgotten history, but a defining event leading to debates down the centuries about the conspiracy of Catiline and at what price can revolution or terrorism or serious crime be averted. It's not without interest that although in the immediate aftermath of the restoration of order, Cicero was seen as a national hero, he received the title Pater Patriae, Father of the Fatherland, it soon went sour 
and he, he had to leave the country when the Senate voted to exile anyone who put a citizen to death without trial. And irony of ironies, when he eventually came back, he found his house demolished and a shrine to Libertas erected in its place. But perhaps this is all a little too long ago for a lecture in 2017, and getting slightly closer in time, although it is hardly contemporaneous, the first public reference in relation to executive warrant interception to the uh, relation to an executive warrant for the interception of communications authorized by a secretary of state in england is the royal proclamation of may the 25th 1663 this forbade the opening of any letters or packets by anyone except by way of the immediate warrant of the principal secretary of state. This set the trend and reflects the modern position whereby interception warrants are generally signed by a secretary of state. A communications provider may be required to develop an interception capability by order of a Secretary of State. And there remains a prohibition within the United Kingdom on the use of the product of the interception within any legal proceedings. And that covers the warrant, the conduct, and the product of the interception, they must all remain entirely secret. Unsurprisingly, this is controversial in legal circles in the UK, and it has caused some of our partners a high degree of perplexity. Oversight in the United Kingdom emerged and developed in a haphazard and somewhat disconnected way in a world that was very different from the present. Rather like the British Constitution, it was organic rather than formulaic in the way that it emerged. The first mention of a person holding high judicial office undertaking oversight of covert conduct is in 1980 when Lord Diplock, a member of the Judicial Committee of the House of Lords, was appointed to monitor the procedures for the interception of communications. This role was put on a statutory basis by the Interception of Communications Act 1985, and the judge became known formally as the Interception of Communications Commissioner. In a sentence, he was responsible for keeping under review the interception of communications and the acquisition and disclosure of communications data by the intelligence agencies, the police, and other public authorities. The commissioner did not have a pre-approval role, and instead these, he inspected these bodies in order to ensure that what they were doing and had done was legitimate. 
in due course. The role of the Interception of Communications Commissioner was broadened to include matters related to communication data and encryption notices linked to interception warrants. This means that when protected information, that is information protected by cryptology, is likely to be or has been obtained under an interception warrant, the position, the permission of the Secretary of State may be sought for an encryption notice to be served in respect of that material. So that was the first role, historically. Two further roles were then created, that of the Intelligence Commissioner and the Chief Surveillance Commissioner, judges who were appointed under an Act of Parliament of 2000. The first, the Intelligence Commissioner, kept under review, first, the exercise by the Secretary's of state, of his or her powers to issue warrants and authorizations in order to enable the intelligence services to carry out their functions. Second, the exercise and performance of the powers and duties imposed on the intelligence services and the Ministry of Defense and armed personnel in relation to covert activities which are the subject of an internal authorization procedure and third the carrying out of any aspect of the functions of the intelligence services as directed by the Prime Minister. Wrapping that together and hoping to make it shortly explicable, they were responsible for overseeing some of the most intrusive powers available to the intelligence agencies, including intrusive surveillance and property and equipment interference. The second of, uh, or rather the third of this triumvirate of commissioners, the Chief Surveillance Commissioner, had statutory responsibilities for property interference, intrusive surveillance, directed surveillance, and covert human intelligence sources, chises. He was assisted by a small body of judicial commissioners. They were all senior retired judges, some assistant commissioners, more junior retired judges, some inspectors, very often but not exclusively retired and senior police officers, and some general staff. The work of these commissioners was divided into four main categories. First, considering notifications of authorizations for property interference when they are granted, renewed or cancelled, and to put some flesh on the bones of that. And examples are placing a listening device in the home of somebody carrying out to carry out a murder or to import military-grade firearms. Second, deciding whether to grant or withhold approval for certain operations under the Police Act 1997 and um, a further piece of legislation before they take place. For example, when it's anticipated, the conduct will involve access to or the collection of a substantial amount of sensitive material not relating to the person or the crime. 
and third, considering notifications of and for long-term authorizations, deciding whether to grant approval for the use and conduct of undercover officers. Fourth and finally, oversight of the use of powers relating to encryption keys. The OSC also had responsibility to review the exercise of surveillance powers by a large number of bodies which was undertaken by way of inspections that were conducted in a range of ways. Those that utilised these important powers the most, the police and all the major law enforcement agencies such as Revenue and Customs and the National Crime Agency, were subject to detailed annual inspections. Others, such as the Health and Safety Executive and the Serious Fraud Office, were inspected every other year. And every council, every local authority in the United Kingdom is inspected and has been inspected from time to time, whether it's annually, biannually, or every three years. Well, that, ladies and gentlemen, is the history. The roles of these three commissioners have been superseded by my appointment as the first Investigatory Powers Commissioner. I was selected by an appointments interview panel following an expression of interest, an expressions of interest exercise amongst members of the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court in the United Kingdom. I was interviewed by a very senior judge who bears the slightly bizarre title of the President of the Queen's Bench Division, the National Security Advisor to the Government and a senior academic who acted as the representative of civil society. My position was formally made effective by the Prime Minister in March of 2017, but she was only able to make that formal appointment when she had the agreement of the heads of the judiciary of England and Wales. And so that meant that she had to have the agreement of the Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales, the Lord Chief Justice of Northern Ireland, and the President of the Council of Scotland. It follows that, in my view, and I think this is widely shared, the Prime Minister is wholly unable to appoint his or her own stooge. Together with my judicial commissioners, in relation to whom I'll have a word to say in a moment, I can only be removed from office by way of a vote of both Houses of Parliament. And that is the same position that relates to the entire ranks of the senior judiciary in England and Wales. And as I understand it, this, that process has only ever happened once since the Victorian era. It is perhaps the best job security in the world. Everything that I, along with my office, are able to do was established by the Investigatory Powers Act 2016. 
and all of our authority derives from it, albeit we also exercise powers under a range of statutory, response, uh, range of statutory provisions which we inherited from the Ancien Regime. So everything that the previous three commissioners were able to do, I'm able to do, and more. As I mentioned earlier, and this is a point of extremely important detail, as a result of a notable particularity of British law, certainly the law of England and Wales, the interception of communications authorised by a warrant is prohibited from use in legal proceedings, and this most usually is relevant to the trial of a criminal accused. This prohibition applies to the intelligence agencies and other law enforcement bodies such as the police. And as a consequence, other surveillance activity or other investigative work is needed to provide an evidential substitute. As acknowledged by David Anderson, Queen's Counsel, in what is certainly for us his near legendary report entitled A Question of Trust, the United Kingdom is one of the few countries within Europe yet to experience a totalitarian regime or to be invaded by one certainly since the days of Charles I, back in the mid-1600s, who lost his head in his attempt to rule without Parliament. As a consequence, the populace has a substantially different perspective of the state than is the case in many other countries. Indeed, it is argued that the United Kingdom intelligence agencies have helped to defeat totalitarian regimes. Add to that the rather, for to that rather fortunate vantage point the very positive image given to members of the agencies in films and documentaries over the past 70 years. Think of John le Carre's George Smiley or Ian Fleming's James Bond. And it is little wonder that the Snowden leaks received to cite James Anderson, um, uh, Anderson, David Anderson, a muted response in the United Kingdom. As a demonstration of our different attitude, I suspect, from the general attitude in the United States, local authorities are continually lobbied and with conspicuous success to install CCTV cameras in town centres and at other crime hotspots. The police undertake their sometimes very intrusive role with the undoubted consent of the public. They are locally appointed and they are accountable to the courts and a local democratically elected oversight commissioner who is called a police and crime commissioner who has responsibility for ensuring the efficient and effective policing in their particular area. 
The seeming consequence of all of this is that less than 700 officers within the United Kingdom carry any form of firearm when performing their duties. Well, what about the Act of Parliament that brought me into existence, the Investigatory Powers Act, which received royal assent less than a year ago on the 29th of November 2016? My work, particularly as regards warrantry, that is, approving or refusing the huge number of applications that we will consider, will come into effect through a series of commencement orders throughout 2018 and possibly going into 2019. As I have said, we inherit all the extensive powers I've just described as held by my predecessor organisations. Therefore, the existing provisions concerning surveillance and covert human intelligence sources and the investigation of encrypted data are not significantly amended by the IP Act, but these activities will, in future, all be overseen by the new Commission. Critically, the Act provides an updated and expanded framework for review and oversight of the use by the security and intelligence agencies, law enforcement and other public authorities of investigatory powers to obtain communications and communications data. It provides statutory safeguards and sets out which powers different public authorities can use and for what purposes. It explains the statutory tests that must be met before a power may be used and the authorization regime for each separate investigative tool. There is a new cadre of judicial commissioners Following a very recent interview and selection process, 15 serving or retired judges of High Court standing or, or above are now in post as of the first of this month. And they will, in, they will approve or refuse warrants for the most sensitive and intrusive powers and help undertake the oversight function of all the agencies for which we have responsibility. Finally, the Act provides a new power for the Secretary of State to require by notice communications service providers to retain internet connection records and we approve or disapprove those requirements. It is to be emphasised, therefore, that the most significant change in the IP Act is the introduction of the judicial double lock. For certain new investigatory techniques in the field of communications and communications data, in addition to the historic authorization processes that I described in some detail earlier, it will be necessary for one of the judicial commissioners to consider the application, which has already been approved by a relevant individual, such as the Secretary of State, and to decide whether or not it should be authorised. In coming to that decision, in reflecting on the lawfulness of what is proposed, 
the judicial commissioners will particularly consider the necessity and the proportionality of the intended activity. Interestingly, as I understand it, the critical ingredient of proportionality, which I believe lies at the heart of these decisions, does not form part of the probable cause test which is used in, which is used in this country. And I speculate, but this is mere speculation at this stage in advance of any decisions that we have got to make, I speculate as to whether in the end there is any substantive difference between something that is permitted because it is necessary on the one hand or because it meets the probable cause threshold on the other. We will have to wait and see uh, how the evolving jurisprudence from our new body resolves that question if it ever arises. It is worth noting, however, that much of what the Intelligence Commissioner used to oversee, for example, authorizations that were granted to the intelligence agencies to interfere with property other than interference with computers, and authorizations to those agencies to conduct intrusive surveillance, will continue not to be subject to the double lock and will be authorised and overseen, the overseeing part of this, being on an ex post facto basis as before. Accordingly, there will be no prior judicial approval for putting a listening device into a car or someone's home. The full involvement of the judiciary in these processes has been the result of a lengthy period of gestation. In 1957, a committee of privy councillors, the Burkitt Committee, appointed to inquire into the legal basis for the interception of communications, rejected any need for judicial involvement in the issuing of warrants. Far more recently, the Intelligence and Security Committee of Parliament prepared a report in the aftermath of the Edward Snowden revelations entitled Privacy and Security, a Modern and Transparent Legal Framework, in which it resisted judicial involvement on the basis that ministers receive internal legal advice upon applications. And to quote from the report, Ministers are able to take into account the wider context of the warrant application and the risk involved, whereas judges can only decide whether a warrant application is legally compliant. There is no doubt that as regards the debate as to whether judges should be involved in all of this, the watershed event was when David Anderson, in his report, A Question of Trust, which reviewed all of this area, adopted the opposite stance to the Parliamentary Committee. Dissenting from the committee's argument and noting that in reality ministers were rarely called to account as to why warrants were authorised, albeit in the same breath he correctly acknowledged their role in matters of, for example, defence and foreign policy. 
In terms of volume, the overwhelming majority of these applications will be for interception relating to a single target of interception, for example, a serious crime. In matters of urgency, streamlined procedures will apply that will allow the Judicial Commissioner to consider the warrant shortly after rather than before the event. It is, in my view, unrealistic and unnecessary to expect my small cadre of judges to be available 24-7 or even late into the evening. If the matter is truly urgent and will take our proper consideration of it substantially outside the usual working day, the judges will consider its legality very shortly after the warrant has come into effect. If he or she then disapproves what has happened, the clock is turned back to the extent that is possible. The activity will cease forthwith and any fruits, that is the material obtained, will be destroyed. And it would not be, in my view, conducive to reliable decision-making to try to force judges late in the evening to make decisions within a very tight time frame. Bulk warrants will be much less common but far more complex. The departments requesting these warrants will need to give the commissioners sufficient time properly to consider the technical and privacy implications of these applications, and my office is recruiting expertise in order to provide relevant advice. These applications will usually have been long in their creation, and there is likely to be no excuse for someone suddenly arriving with a highly complex, novel and potentially contentious application demanding that it is turned round in a few hours. We will be unforgiving if having lingered for weeks or months putting the application together, there is then an attempt to make us digest, understand and resolve very difficult issues in an artificially shortened time frame. We have received endless reassurances from the civil service in this regard, but I've had far too much experience down the years of officials rushing in at the last moment with a bundle of papers that have lingered on their desks for eons demanding an immediate signature. As I've just mentioned, there will be an in-house technical expert Indeed, many of the core of my inspectors have an impressive armory of relevant knowledge. And one of the glories of the IP Act, and a further brainchild of David Anderson, is that it provides for what is called a technical advisory panel, independent, part-time leading experts in their field with the highest level of knowledge and experience who I appoint rather than the government appoints and who will provide the Commission with technical assistance in any relevant field. I do not need to tell this audience how quickly the IT and surveillance landscape is changing, particularly as we move towards the era of quantum computing, 
and we will need to understand how new pieces of technical wizardry will work, whether they can be configured to reduce or, elimin or eliminate unnecessary collateral intrusion, and whether they will bring consequences that have not been revealed in the application. Where are we currently? The task of merging the offices of the Intelligence Commissioner, the Chief Surveillance Commissioner and the Interception of Communications Commissioner is well underway and we are almost entirely carrying over the excellent staff who worked in those bodies. We have recruited some additional members of staff and although at the moment I have only 15 judicial commissioners, um, I will be able to expand that number if the amount of work is greater than we have anticipated. I am very pleased to say that I was able to attract judges of the highest level. I have some former Supreme Court judges, a significant number of members of former members of the Court of Appeal and a smattering of High Court judges, all of whom have had relevant experience in this area. There were some, how can I put this tactfully, slightly surprising decisions that were made over the arrangements for our accommodation. The powers that be knew that we have been coming for a very long time, yet we have not so far moved into what I believe will be excellent new offices in central London. At the moment I'm without either a desk or a chair. In practice, this means we're currently working from split sites whilst we delve into the detail of how we will process the considerable number of applications to review warrants and as we plan a new inspection regime that I hope will be, to the extent possible, consistent across all the bodies who operate in this area. We anticipate, based on the previous Commissioner's published reports, that there will be approximately 3,000 applications for interception warrants each year. And of the other warrants and authorisations, for instance, property interference and intrusive surveillance, there will be around 1,500 for the intelligence agencies and 2,500 for law enforcement. If my maths is up to it, 7,000 per annum as a ballpark figure. The most intrusive measures, such as the interception of communication, intrusive surveillance and property interference, may only be undertaken in the most acute circumstances by the intelligence, by the intelligence agencies and law enforcement for the most serious of issues. On the other hand, there are a wide range of public authorities who may undertake more limited types of covert surveillance, such as physically following a suspect or acquiring their communications data. Such investigations include the sale of alcohol to children, carried out by the Trading Standards Agency, determining from whom fake medicines have been obtained and then supplied to members of the public, that's the National Health Service, the supply of marine vessels not fit for purpose and injuries or deaths at sea, that is the Maritime Coast Guard investigations, and, in, and investigating accidents, 
become fatal in the workplace, and that's governed by the health and safety executive. Um, there are many other examples, but I wish to give you just a flavour of the extent and range of the kind of works that we are kind of work that we are overseeing. This is a critical period, and I have made no secret, both at home and as I did just now, of the fact that I would have preferred to have moved into our new accommodation by now. But this is an unimportant detail in the context of the wider landscape. Essentially, I believe that the proposed arrangements are robust and fit for purpose. A skillfully drafted and perhaps somewhat unusually a readily understandable statutory provision has provided the divine spark bringing us into existence and in the near future we will be carrying out the role of review and oversight of a formidable array of surveillance powers by a wide range of bodies. Well, finally, before I sit down, a word about the future. On a few occasions since my appointment in March, senior members of my staff have fixed me with a baleful gaze and said words to the effect of, well, what's the vision then? You're being very slow in describing your route to the sunny uplands to which we are all looking forward. Somewhat, I cannot help but think, reducing my office to the Von Trapp family in The Sound of Music as they climbed the Alpine passes. Well, I'm afraid that as a judicial chairman of the board, in effect, I am deeply suspicious of making impressive sounding commitments in advance of doing any of the actual work that we will be undertaking. And as with politicians who make extravagant campaign promises, these things can come back to haunt you, even bite you, in a very painful way or in a very painful place. But that cautionary note aside, I nonetheless have identified five inescapable guiding principles and more will be added over the months. First, everyone who works at the Commission must be fearlessly independent, unstintingly fair in their approach, and beyond a whisper of reproach as regards their integrity, ethics and honesty. In a world where celebrity lamentably, lamentably tends to count far more than any of the virtues of yesteryear, I'm afraid I will be taking a very old-fashioned approach to personal probity. Second, we have a clearly defined statutory role given to us by Parliament, and we must discharge that function rigorously wherever the properly made decisions lead us. We will not be able to please everyone. Those who work in oversight bodies should not do so if they wish to be friends or best friends with one and all, 
and some of what we will do will not be popular in some quarters, at least for some of the time. Well, that's life, as Frank Sinatra was so fond of reminding us. Third, in the post-Snowden world, security and law enforcement agencies can no longer claim to be allowed to work in the shadows, regardless of whether particular details of their work actually need to be kept under wraps. As a judge of 15 years, who's conducted more criminal trials than I care to remember, including handling many terrorist cases, I'm acutely aware that some things truly need to remain secret. And I equally recognise that we must be conscious of the ability of those who would harm us to draw prejudicial lines between seemingly innocuous dots of information. Looked at by itself, the fact in issue may seem unimportant, ranged alongside 16 other facts of equal seeming unimportance, something important and justifiably secret may end up being revealed. But the case needs to be made well if secrecy is to be applied. We will trespass in this area with care. I'm not going to stamp over sensitive information that could be used to our collective real prejudice wearing hobnail boots. But I will insist on an informed debate with the holder of the information as to whether the claim for secrecy is truly justified. Wasn't it Justice Brandeis, if I pronounce his name correctly, who said publicity is justly commended as a remedy for social and industrial diseases, sunlight is said to be the best of disinfectants. And Mahatma Gandhi, in a similar vein, observed truth never damages, never, never damages a cause that is just. Everything including our decisions that can properly be publicised in whole or in part, will be publicised. We will only keep necessary secrets. And I hope that in time our website will become a mine of useful information. Fourth, I want to speak with, well, not everyone. I don't intend to strike up a conversation with ISIS or the Mafia, but I do hope to talk with all those who have a legitimate interest in what we do. To date, I have spent a good deal of time liaising with the security and law enforcement agencies, understanding the nature of their work and how they do it but they cannot expect to have a monopoly on my attention. There are two sides to this coin, or these coins, and everyone with a credible and legitimate interest in our work, particularly the NGOs and others who represent civil society and academics, will find that I have a considerable willingness to listen to all their, indeed your, points of view. 
I shall set up a range of events and occasions at which there can be discussion on general and particular issues in order to inform myself, the commissioners and my staff as to all the credible interests in these multiple debates. And we will act on the best arguments, whoever presents them. Fifth, I will strive to ensure that my office is not the source of improper disclosure of any secret information. Vetting of all my staff will be at an appropriately high level. We will keep the minimum amount of material on site. I will fight our civil service for access to robust, appropriate and secure IT systems and I intend to hold regular staff and judicial commissioner briefings on security. I will liaise carefully with the security and law enforcement agencies to ensure we scrupulously protect their information. These words may well come back to haunt me but the watcher of the watchers should not be the source of impermissible disclosures. We must be copper-bottomed and wholly watertight. I'm very grateful that you have attended today to give me an early opportunity in the country of one of our most important partners abroad to talk about our new office. The United States is incredibly important to us. I view the NGOs and the representatives of civil society as acting, amongst other things, in the role of our conscience. The people from those groups help us and the organisations over which we have authority help us to keep focused on the issues that matter. And most particularly of all, NGOs and representatives of civil society help ensure that we have in the forefront of our minds that this work must only be done in the public interest and no one else's interest. To this end, I've asked representatives of NGOs and academics in the United Kingdom to assist with the training of the new Corps of Commissioners and all of my staff, and I will involve representatives of civil society in the important debate as to what legally constitutes the judicial review test that we will be performing. We are working, for instance, with Essex University on a project in this context. We will find other imaginative ways of involving uh, organisations back home of that kind in our endeavours. We are right at the beginning. We have a daunting amount of work to do, but I believe we've been provided with a strong statutory vehicle that will enable us to undertake serious, comprehensive and rigorous oversight of the bodies who have been given leave to intrude into our privacy. One of my ambitions is that in the future, Snowden-type whistleblowers will knock on our door prior to considering going to the press and that we will take all necessary steps to reassure them that their concerns have been substantively addressed. 
I hope over the course of the next two or three years that we do it well and that I do not return home one evening to find that my house has been demolished and a statue to Libertas has been erected in its place. Perhaps at another similar event in a year or two, you will be able to tell me whether my house is safe and whether the stonemasons are working hard at constructing a British Statue of Liberty. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much.